Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Okay, uh, the topic is capital budgeting. This is actually kind of one of the big things that uh, corporate finance people do. They are the ones uh, in, this, in this work, they are the ones who say yes or no to projects. You can have projects come out of operations management. You can have projects come out of marketing. You can have even projects come out, come out of IT. And uh, this is the place where the finance people say yes or no. And the decision criterion is actually pretty simple. It is a yes or no based upon a number. And so I show you that today. Now, back in the old days, and I keep, I, I apologize for saying that so much, but back in the old days, this was a pain in the butt to do. Now, it's just keystrokes on a calculator or uh, entries into Excel. Although, interestingly enough, Excel has a nasty little feature in it that's not exactly right. But I show you how to compensate for that when we do it that way. Mm. But before we do that, I'll look at the numbers today. And as you can see, it is just not a day, it's a directionless day. You got the Dow up a little bit, the S&P down a little bit, and the NASDAQ down a little more. That's that pattern you've seen in the last couple of trading sessions where the Dow is responding at least mildly favorably to uh, news of the minute. But uh, the broader S&P 500 and the much broader NASDAQ don't particularly like the news. It's not like disastrous in any of these. It's just like sitting there. And if you look uh, real quick, um, you notice that the day started out at the opening bell, they were all down. And since then, they've been clawing their way back up. All of three of those uh, numbers are slowly finding their way. Well, yeah, the Dow has broken into positive. S&P 500 and the NASDAQ are working their way back up. So apparently, whatever grouchy news there was that started this, uh, the session today, there's something that is favorable that's getting them all back up a little bit. Now, look over here real quick. Crude oil. As I had told you before, crude wanted to, went up when OPEC Plus said, well, we're going to cut production, supply will go down, prices will go up. Well, looky here, that's beginning to fade away and it's moving back into that 72 to 79 trading band again. That's one of those things that's kind of like, yeah, they cut their production, but how much can you believe that when you start see them still pouring oil out? So for what it's worth, in gold, uh, down, the gold bugs had broken 2,000, which is sort of like a 
uh, kind of like a magic neckline, $2,000 an ounce, but it's been plunging back down. So the, uh, the gold bugs are not in a good mood. They don't, apparently the apocalypse isn't happening soon enough for them. Now, interestingly, Euro, uh, the Euro dollar, uh, the Euro, Euro is depreciating, the dollar is appreciating. Uh, put another way, at the peak, there was concern that it was going to break $1.10 for a euro. But as you can see, the euro has been plunging, and it made that run up there, but it's not really, the, it, it's not probably not going to make it even back to 109 today. So in other words, the euro is depreciating against the dollar. Euro is the first one. And uh, the dollar is appreciating against the euro. So in this case, now at the peak today, the euro was, it would cost a dollar 9.23 cents to buy a euro. Then the plunge happened. It's recovered a little bit. Right now, it costs only a dollar 8.59 to buy a euro. So the euro is depreciating against the dollar. The dollar is strengthening against the euro. Follow that? <laughs> Try to do it again here. Um, look over here at the, um, the uh, pound sterling, the Great, uh, Great Britain pound. It also is depreciating against the dollar. If I pop this, you'll see that Oh, that's not a good one at all. Let's try that again. I didn't like, well, I thought I clicked the right thing. Okay, there we go. And you see that the pound sterling, earlier today, it made it to, it would have cost $1.24.42 to buy a pound. As it fell off the cliff here, now it's recovered a little bit, but now it costs only $1.23.77 to buy a pound. So the pound is depreciating against the dollar. Just keep the, writing this down in your notes. I'll ask a very simple question about this on a quiz just to uh, see if you can catch on to this. It is important for us in our world. You're going to be in that famous global economy, and so it's not it, it's not a useless exercise to understand how our currency moves against other currencies and uh, what that means for the global economy, what that means for the United States. You see, when the dollar is low in value, our exports are cheap in other countries and imports are more expensive here. But as the dollar strengthens, that makes our exports more expensive and imports cheaper. So that it has its impact uh, on bo uh, both ways. I won't get into that too much in any given session. I may hit it a little harder sometime down the road in a few days. But the yen, the yen is quoted backwards. So these numbers are the opposite. So the dollar, the yen is depreciating against the dollar. The dollar is appreciating against the yen. For what that's worth, ten-year bond price, uh, the yield is up, so that means the price is down. 
the yields here are pushing upward again, and that's probably because the Fed has signaled that it's going to do one more rate hike before it's finished with this attack on inflation. And so that's probably spooked the investors a little bit. So they get out of the bonds, go somewhere else, and that drives price down, yield up. London and Tokyo. Tokyo, it had a jump right at the beginning. But once that noise had fizzled out and the impact of whatever news it was had sorted, the rest of the day in Tokyo, it just floated. There was no good news, no bad news. So there's no momentum to move the overall market. London, on the other hand, once Tokyo was finished, London got out underway, and it just had a slow rise all through the day. Just positive sentiment building and no negative news to kill it. It wasn't spectacular, but it was a good, solid, bold day over there in London. Contrary to here, where we started out with a hell of bear day, and then it's been climbing back up. Although right there, do you see there at the end, we've got a little turn back down. I'll get, I'm not worried. I pro the day will probably end on the plus, slightly plus side, or barely negative on all of the indexes. <coughs> so there you are for that. Uh, enough of that. Now, you see I have the calculator up. Interestingly, most of what I do today is easier to do on the calculator than it is in Excel. Excel has, there's one thing we do today that's a real pain in the butt to do on the calculator. And Excel just does it like that, which is kind of appalling. But uh, there you are. Start out with a little story for you. A little historical background, which may be meaningless to you, but it does have some impact right now. Uh, go clear back to the Middle Ages. That's where all of this kind of began with capital budgeting. It, after, uh, the Middle Ages was actually, there were a couple of really good periods during the Middle Ages. In the 1200s, there was a very mild, temperate climate for many years in Europe and Great Britain. And uh, so there was some prosperity. But that, good time came to an end with, and a lot of uh, scientists and historians attributed to what was called a mini ice age, uh, probably because of a volcano that puffed out and clouded the earth and made everything cold. And everything got cold, the poor got poor, and the rich were even having problems. And strangely enough, there was a system in place in Europe and Great Britain called uh, feu uh, the feudal system. People would live on the land of these lords and ladies and nobility, and they would live there for generations. They would tend to crops, tend to animals, and all that kind of good stuff. 
and uh, it, it worked. The, they were called, some people call them serfs. A, more, a better term would be Valains. They lived in villages and all this on these massive properties owned by the rich and famous and infamous. But uh, a strange thing began to happen in uh, the 1300s. A, and we'd seen this in other times in history. It was called an enclosure movement, where for uh, some reasons, the owners of the land, these lords and all of this, nobile, nobles, they started kicking the uh, working people, the villains, the serfs, off the land. They said, leave. You no longer are allowed to live here and grow old here and have generations here, we want you to leave. You can come back for the plantings and the harvest, but other than that, we don't want you on our land anymore. <coughs> and it happened through Europe and uh, Great Britain, this, this enclosure movement. And so in a matter of just uh, some, not, not many years, you had these in extraordinarily large, populations of miserably poor people on the roads. And just like in other times, they, the rumors start about places where there are jobs, where they can live comfortably again, where they can have their families. And of course, that's the cities. We, this happened during the Great Depression. If you read the book Grapes of Wrath, all the Okies and uh, others, they all said California's where we should go because that's the land of milk and honey. Same thing was happening in the Middle Ages. Everyone thought London was the place to go and places like that. And so they were on the road, living their lives, begging for food, dying, giving birth. And along the way, they were leaving their trash, their feces, their uh, bodies, so who was following them on the roads? The rats. And on the rats were the fleas. And the fleas were carrying the plagues. Now people think the plague was the bubonic plague, but it was not at first. It was the pneumonic plague. It would attack and it would kill off the weak and it compromised the immune systems of the kids and even fairly strong adults. So when the bubonic plague came and these people were compressing into the cities, teeming in there with all their trash, all their shit and everything else about them, the rats had their targets and then the fleas had their targets and the bubonic plague hit. A quarter to a third of the population of Europe was annihilated in a matter of maybe a decade. And that was an environmental problem in and of itself. How do you get rid of all those bodies that fed the diseases? And you had the, the king, cholera, you had bubonic plague, pneumonic plague, uh, influenzas, you name it, just wiping out lots of people. Strange thing about tragedies like that, though, once it was over, the supply of labor went down massively. And so you began to see the power of workers in guilds 
fancy name for unions, beginning to flex their muscles. And when the nobleman said, we shall pay you a pence for this, they would say, screw you, you can't find what we do and you need what we do. And so we had a growing middle class. And interestingly enough about that middle class was those old rules didn't apply to them. They, oh, well, you're supposed to walk around in this miserable tunic and have those hats to keep the lights from flying around your head, popping off your head. Well, that started disappearing. People started looking better. And a part of that was that they began to have a curiosity about what was going on in the world around them, far away places. Now, no one had tried from Europe or Great Britain to go to Rome, although they all knew that it was just ruins. Well, a couple of explorers managed to get down there. One of them was the famous poet named Geoffrey Chaucer. And when they came back, they said, Rome is not dead, Rome is alive, it's come back. You should see what's happening down there. Art, food, music, books that aren't about piety and worrying about your life after this life. It's about romance, it's about sex, it's about violence, this is a new world. And they brought back foods and look at what we found, the art and things like that. The sculptures were not of these rigid, miserable-looking uh, marble people. It was flowing people naked and all of that good stuff. And so people said, we want more. And that stimulated explorations. Christopher Columbus was not unusual. They were trying to find places that they could go to bring back all of these foods. Why? Because they could make money off it. And so, uh, Christopher Columbus, Cristobal Colomb, and his brother started having plans to go to the west to get over to the Spice Islands and the trade routes of, the, of Asia, of China, and places like that. And of course, they needed money to do that. And so they had to find a way to raise capital. Well, I'll be darned. We're starting to talk about greed driving exploration. And so they had to go to the powerful people. That was not necessarily the kings and queens. They were moving around in the circles of these wealthy families that had come out of the Middle Ages. The guilds, the unions, and all of those, uh, like the de' Medici's of uh, Italy, and they were starting to say, look, we can bring back stuff that will make a lot of money, but we need ships to do it. We need provisions, we need crews to get this accomplished. And so that was where it all began. These wealthy families were not stupid. They said, we wanna look at your, what you're proposing, how much, break it down for us. And then show us what you're going to bring back. Estimate your revenues. Well, this was kind of an interesting thing, too, because there was not a real, there was no standardized way to do it. So all I say about accounting, here's where I have to say accounting brought about the modern era. There was a monk in Italy. I believe he had a vow of silence his whole life. His name was Pacioli. 
he created an accounting system. In fact, it was the double ledger accounting system. The same one we use today was invented by a vow of silence monk living in a monastery. And so they all start preparing their, these explorers, these proposers of uh, needing venture capital. They would present their books. This is what we, on this side, our costs, these are our revenues, this is the profit. And that began to get the families, the wealthy families, the nobles interested. Show me more. As a matter of fact, the idea that Queen Isabella financed uh, Christopher Columbus's trip, uh, which was supposed to get to China, but it ran into this massive pile of continental and uh, island stuff. One of the ships was financed by a wealthy private uh, a man. As a matter of fact, he insisted that he captained the ship. I believe it was the Pinta that was his ship in the Nina, the Santa uh, Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Those weren't their actual names. Those are names that were made up later. But anyway, so here's the thing, though: is this was the beginning of capital budgeting? Are we going to be able to make more off this? investment than it is going to cost us for this investment. That's capital budgeting. What we do to this day, are we going to make more off this than it cost us? Now the first way that we can kind of document, well, as a matter of fact, let me write this down. There are three major methods for capital budgeting decision-making. There is the ancient payback period method. And then there are two much, much more modern methods. One's called net present value. And internal rate of return. Now, the payback period method was the first. That was what they were doing. I've even read some documents that are related to these decision-making processes, and it's unquestionable they were using the payback period method. And you'll see how easy it's, in a way, it has a logic to it. But here's the upshot. Of all of these methods, the worst of them is payback period method. The best of them is net present value, followed by internal rate of return, which is a good method, but it has a place where you shouldn't use it. A few years back, one of these research organizations, corporate research, put out a poll to large corporations, and they wanted to know Okay, which of these methods are you using for capital budgeting decision-making? A plurality, 45% or something like that, are still using the payback period method. The ancient method, which is not 
very good at all. And then after that, the next on the list was the internal rate of return method, which isn't bad, but you shouldn't use it in some circumstances. The least used was the net present value method, the best of the methods. The theoretically most sound, the logically most sound. So there you are. Payback period method. And I, it was last year, I was at a dinner with some uh, corporate treasury officials of a, a relatively decent sized company up in Chicago. And the treasury official was laughing at one of the younger uh, members of her staff who was doing net present value for decision making on a project. And she just cut him off, uh, made fun of him, and just said, you just do it this way. She was describing payback period method. Of course, they were paying for my dinner, so I didn't open my pie hole at all. But <laughs> at the same time, it was, I, my God, the, this was a person who had an MBA. Hence why MBA stands for mindless babbling asshole. But I shouldn't say that. I teach MBAs. <laughs> Take the A out of MBA. Okay, here's how it works. Watch, watch this, watch this. Uh, I wrote down some numbers. Let me get my numbers so I don't do something that's... Uh, okay, let's do, uh, I'll put it over here so we can apply all the methods to it. Here, free cash flow. Now year zero, and we'll do a four year, one, two, three, four. The project lasts four years in fizzles. Okay, free cash flow. The free cash flow in year zero is negative $50,000. In other words, you put in $50,000 to make the machine run. In the first year, it spits back $5,000, which is surprisingly, not surprisingly what happens in your first year usually. And then it picks up product recognition and brand recognition, so to year two, 15,000. Year three, it's at its peak at 32,000, and then it drops away, and there's $8,000. And a salvage value, and I'll talk about this more in a few minutes here, a salvage value of $3,000. So whenever you have a salvage value, Whenever you have a salvage value, and it can be positive or it can be negative, and I'll talk about that, you simply add that to the final year of the project to get 11,000 in this case. Be sure you add salvage value back in. One of the weaknesses in your problem set online homework is that they say, don't worry about salvage value. It's zero. Oh God, that's one of the biggest mistakes in the world that decision making can commit. Ooh. Yeah. This is 
for payback period? It's going to be for all of them, but we're going to do it for payback period first. Here's how payback period works. Starts with a decision. How long will we put up with this project not paying for itself? So they set a number on the payback period. They will say, let's say in this case, payback period in three years. So let's watch this thing run. So Year's zero, you're out $50,000. Year one, you're still down to 45,000, though you got 5,000 in it. Year two, with 15,000, you're in the whole 30,000. In year three, uh, three you're up $2,000. And in year four, you're up a total of $13,000. Zero, one, two, it's positive in year three, so it's a go. It pays for itself in the time period. <coughs> That's the payback period method. There are two fundamental flaws with this method. The first one is that it's not taking into account the time value of money. Those cash flows in one, two, three, four, they can't be compared to the 50,000 unless you are taking them back to their present values at some discount rate. $32,000 in three years is not $32,000 right now. It just isn't. It has a discount that must be applied to it. And there is a way to adjust the payback period method so that you do take into a discount those cash flows. There's no question that that's done. But the more fundamental question is, why three years? I have asked that when I was a consultant, virtually every small company that was trying to go get, get underway used payback period method. And they would use anything from three years to seven years. And no matter who I asked, why that number, all they could come up with, well, that's just how we do it. Or that's the way it was done by my pappy and so I'm gonna do it that way too, seven years. That's it, right there there was not a technical explanation of why you choose the payback period you choose. It's essentially, it's pulled out of the very time-honored ass. There's no, there, there's no logic to it. They think there is, and in many cases, they just seem to be appalled that you would ask why that number of years. In the case of the... Um, one I was telling you about where I heard it at that dinner, the payback period was four years, just four years. And I, I, I was dying to ask why four years, where that came from. 
but it's probably that's just what they'd always done and that's what they were always going to do and no one asked the question why four years so there you go that's payback period method now uh, there's a well if this is so wrong how did we get as far as we did through the Renaissance, through the uh, industrial age and all of that. Well, why, if it's wrong, did we get clear through all of those? That has to do with the fact that in a young, growing economy, in a growing world, a lot of projects are going to work. Regardless of whether you decide they are or not, they will, especially if there's good entrepreneurial skill and you've got a product that has not been explored or a way to get to a product that hasn't been done before. Yeah, it wasn't anything to do with the capital budgeting decision-making method. It was the fact that these were a good idea. Uh, so it, take it for what it's worth. And even if you go into a company where they're using the payback period method, shut up. You'll have your chance, and I've said this before, we move forward with new understandings from people like you, and as you rise in corporations, you begin to replace old, antiquated, bad methods with more modern methods. So just bide your time and remember what I teach you here and what your other professors teach you. You'll have your chance down the road to bring uh, the corporate world into a uh, more enlightened age, as it were. Don't try too fast, or they'll just fire your ass like they did me a few times in my life. Okay. Now we're going to take this one off the board. Payback period. By the way, you can even estimate it if you want down to the decimal year with the payback period method. Okay. In one year, we moved uh, this much, so you can take the average of these and say, where is the positive breakpoint on it if you want? It's still, it's like counting the angels dancing on the head of a pin. Now let me take you on the next road. And I'm going to go back and make a brief statement about that salvage value thing. The salvage value is the cost, is the recovery. When you close down a project, you don't just say, okay, FTS, let's move on, lol. Uh, you say, okay, we've got to shut it down. Now, interestingly enough, there will be money that you can recover, sell the old equipment, and all that. But there's also going to be costs involved. And what happened over a long period of time was that companies ignored well, both the positives and the negatives. You would be amazed at the number of companies that still have equipment that they mothball from projects decades ago 
They're sitting in warehouses, and I've seen this myself. It, it, the equipment was just out of date, and they weren't using it, and eventually it became unusable. And so there you are. All this equipment that they could have sold at the time, they didn't. And whether or not they sold it, it represents an opportunity cost to them of not selling it. Downstairs, I told you about that dark room that's in the uh, basement here. In there is all of this equipment, computers from ancient times with these big, huge, heavy monitors and, um, that are, uh, and hard drives that are clunky, 10 megabyte and dial-up modems, all down there in the basement. There are even telephone systems, uh, like 10 boxes with these old-style phones with the push buttons and the dial, and it's all sitting down there. That could have been sold or donated when it was decommissioned, and I've mentioned this before, hell, they could have donated it to schools, I mean, elementary and high schools back in the day, but they just put it down there, and a lot of companies do this. I saw a warehouse that was full of old style equipment, backhoe types of equipment. Hell, there was something, I think it was like a crane in there even, that was on its flat out along this ginormous long wall. But uh, they can sell that. Whether or not they do, it must be considered a positive, a cash inflow, okay? There are also other cash inflows too. When you end a project, you are going to, in the year that it's ended, you are going to bleed out the inventory that you build up and you're not going to replace it. So you've got this large uh, amount of inventory going down, that's free cash flow going up. You've got to consider that. Now here's the dark side of it, cost. You're going to have costs of decommissioning, of ending a project. An obvious cost, you're going to lay off people, but there are, there's one that is just a huge cost that used to never be considered, and now it's a nightmare for a lot of companies. Environmental remediation. And it is a freaking whopper. Oh, well, just put all that. Uh, you know, computer equipment is actually an environmental hazard, as are USTs, the underground storage tanks that were used during a project, and then they just are capped off and they walk away from them, and those are environmental disasters waiting to happen. Barrels by the thousands of toxic waste just sitting in warehouses waiting to become uh, a problem for an entire community. They're ignored. And if you do ignore them, then they can very well come back to bite you in the ass in massive liability lawsuits years and years after the project is over. So when you are deciding, and you will be decision makers on projects, you lay out a roadmap. It isn't about the present, it's about the future. And it's not just about the revenues and costs while the project is alive. Lay out the roadmap for the future generation to see how to solve the problems that the project created.
make it part of your project. It's not someone else's problem down the road unless you really want them to come to your grave and piss on it when they have to clean up the mess that you didn't have a roadmap for doing at the time. That's part of Think about it this way. I've paid for my uh, cremation. That way I don't have to have someone bitching because they have to pay for my cremation. This is the same thing. <coughs> so the salvage value can be a negative number. And it's almost like they deliberately ignored what was going to happen down the road so that they would get positive net present value projects. But it's going to bite the company back in the ass sooner or later. The uh, private airplane market collapsed in the late 80s and in the 90s, especially in the 90s, because all these planes that had been built in the 60s and the 70s, they were structurally beautiful, incredible, but they were also structurally flawed. They would, uh, they would deteriorate and compromise and kill people many years later. The, those private airplane companies screamed bloody murder when they got sued 20, 30 years later for the airplanes they had built. But it was their fault for not preparing for that eventuality. They were damn engineers. They should have known. And the same is true with any product. Don't look at all, just how wonderful it is. Look at what can happen down the road and prepare for it. Make your product as strong as possible put liability insurance into place that will have a long tail to protect you from that tailing liability in the years after the project is over. Yeah, that's a good idea to do that. So that's salvage value. Don't ignore it. And that's one of the things that bothers me. Too many of the corporate uh, finance textbooks, they, they tend to think of this as a law. Environmental remediation is a big, huge issue right now. And that's why the way they're dealing with toxic waste these days, they're making, they're future-proofing. Okay, we're going to put this somewhere so that it won't be a hazard down the road. Okay, when the project breaks, uh, cuts down, we have the methods to remediate what we have done and all that. That's good news that they're starting to do it now, but they're not doing it enough. Too many companies are still ignoring it. That's just good corporate management policy. Mm. Anyway, enough bitching about that. Net present value. It's actually pretty straightforward. The trick part is getting a discount rate because we're going to discount all of these future expected cash flows up and then compare them to the initial investment. If it is a positive number that comes out of that, it's a go. If it's a negative number, it's a no-go. But we need a discount rate. Now, how do we do that? The one way would be the one that is used by companies, and it's not always the, it's not really the best, but they use the weighted average cost of capital, the WAC, as the discount rate. That's why companies are so interested in getting that WAC, and they have these corporate finance uh, jockeys that calculate it, and then they use that as the discount rate for the future expected cash flows. In other words, uh, that's not the best idea, though, because you see, each project will have its own individual risk level. The WAC measures the discount rate of the overall company. So you could have a project 
that is safer than the average project of the company. So you wouldn't want to use a discount rate as high as WAC. Or you might have a project that is risky AF, and so you would want a discount rate that was higher than the WAC. So that's the big problem, but the WAC is hugely popular for finding NPVs, net present values. Okay, what was I thinking? Um, another way you can do it is use CAPM. Well, that would mean you'd have to find the beta of the project, and that's the way most companies would do that is they would look at companies that specialize in that kind of project, and they would take an average of their betas and then throw it into the CAPM. That's, that's, one, that, that's another popular way. And of course, I've run into one or two companies that just pulled a discount rate out of thin air. But let's just, for the sake of argument, Let's say that we're going to discount these future expected cash flows at 8%. In other words, we're going to take the $8,000 discounted back three years of four years at 8% plus $32,000 discounted back three years at 8%, then $15,000 discounted back two years at 8%, and then 5,000 discounted, add in 5,000 discounted one year back at 5%, and then add those up and then subtract the $50,000. If the answer is positive, yes. If it's negative, no. Now, if you think I'm going to actually do each of those 8,000 times one plus 0 0.08 to the negative fourth plus 32,000 times 1 plus 0 0.08 to the negative third, etc. You're crazy. I've tried it and I always get it wrong. However, the calculator, this is where the calculator just comes into its own magnificently. Turn the calculator on. Apps, finance, and go down here to NPV. Enter. You'll come up to the main screen, NPV. Now, the first thing you'll put in is your discount rate, 8. Don't put it in a .08. Remember, this is a TI app, so it likes just the percentage. Now remember that a comma is what you say, here comes the next to the calculator. Now the next thing you're going to do is put in the initial investment, which in this case was negative $50,000. And now you're going to tell the calculator, here comes something else, so you're going to put in a comma. Now the way you tell the TI that you have, start, you want it to start counting years or periods. You open the brace, that's the second parenthesis. And be careful about this because it's really easy to forget and put the parenthesis and then the LCD is going to make it hard for you to see that you did it. Now, you put in the numbers and remember it's counting. Here's year one, $5,000 comma. 
Here's year two, 15,000. Comma. Here's year three, 32,000. Comma. Here's year four. It's the 8,000 plus the 3,000. Remember that the salvage value goes on the last year. Now you t you've told it. Now remember, it's keeping a count here. So even if there was a year that was a zero, you just put in comma, zero, comma. So you've counted out the years. So you say, all right, I'm done with you counting. Second, close the brace. And that tells it we're done, uh, stop counting. And then you close the parenthesis that began this whole app. And you hit enter. You get $978. And You get $978. So this is a go. It's positive. Doesn't matter how positive. If it's, a, if it's positive, you say go. If it's negative, you say no go. <coughs> now let me do something here. Suppose uh, someone says, oh, our bad, you were supposed to use 9% instead of 8%. Don't, oh God, I have to put this whole thing in again? No. If you hit second enter, it will show you the formula. And you can go up and just replace the 8 with a 9. Just override it. Y'all with me? Oh! It's negative at 9%. It's negative what? 285? So now it's a reject. In fact, in fact, I could do a whole bunch of discount rates. And you would see something emerge. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Now, let me draw those two, just roughly, <laughs> roughly draw those two. One, two, three, four. <coughs> I'm going to graph NPV on the vertical axis.
and this is I used to be so picky I'd use a, a giant yardstick and draw this and I found out I don't have enough time left in my life to do that but look, look here eight percent eight percent bought us about almost a thousand dollars and then nine percent got us almost negative three hundred dollars see those two points if you started doing six percent seven percent you graphed them all what you would see is a well let's try to do that As a straight line, it is a straight line. It would graph the whole thing would graph as a straight line. You'd plot a bunch of discount rates. That line is called an NPV profile. Every project will have its own. The NPV profile simply shows the net present value as a function of the discount rate that you used for it. I mean, well, I'll, I'll hold that off for a second here. But as you can see, you could actually just simply look at this. If someone said, use a discount rate of 6%, if you had the NPV profile, you'd say, go. You know it's positive NPV. If someone said, use a 10% discount rate, you'd say, no. The NPV profile line is negative down there at 10%. That's what NPV profiles do for you. And like I said, every project will have its own. They're, they're straight lines, usually. And they're just at, you know, tipped up or tipped down. Some actually, <laughs> there's a whole kind of little sub-science of what the slope of the MPV profile line means and all that. But that's MPV. That's all there is to it. Yes or no, just run the MPV on it. Now let me show you this in Excel real quick here. And I'll make this bigger. You, there will be one thing, but uh, I'm going to tell you a secret in a minute, but it, it's worth it for you to know this because obviously with Excel, you've got a document and you can pass it around. If your boss says, let me see the NPV calculation, you don't want to hand him, here's my TI-83, don't push the clear button. It, it, the Excel gives you the ability to document what you have done. So here we would have the year and the free cash flow and over here I'll put the discount rate somewhere inconspicuous. Year zero one Oops, try one more year. Free cash flow, negative 
50,000, and then you had 5,000. Oh, let me do one more thing here. I'm going to put over here salvage value. And the reason is that that number, my experience is that that can change based upon arguments about co future costs. But anyway, and then I got 15,000. Oops. And then I've got 32,000. And then I've got, I want to put my salvage value 3,000. And so I'll put equals. 11,000, I'm sorry, 8,000, God, plus your salvage value, which we'll have as a fixed amount, F4. Okay, that's the basic data being put in, and we'll put in a discount rate here of 8%. Now remember in Excel, you have to tell it it's a percent, unlike a TI. Okay, so... Then the NPV will equal. Now here's the part that sucks. Their NPV starts its count at one. So you have to put in the first year yourself. Plus NPV of, oops, I forgot to put in the rate. Let's try that again. Put in the rate, 8%, and then the years one through whatever. Now you can see that Excel, once you've got it set up, it, it, it would be somewhat easier if you had a long project, a project that was 10, 15 years. But aside from that, my ass. What did I, oh, I put it, why? This is what also just makes my boxers bunch. <laughs> really? 12 decimal places? I don't think so. And so, as you can see, it gives you the NPV. And then I can just change this if I want and all that kind of stuff. Let me show you something. I'm going to go back here. And I'm going to fix so that these are absolute references. F4 on that one and F4 on that one. And B2, I'm going to make an absolute reference. Because I'm going to show you something here. Watch this. Suppose that I wanted to say 9% and 10%. Then I could run down here. See it? Same thing I was doing over there. The profile, the NPV profile. I could even do a graph here. No, maybe I can do a graph. <laughs> um,
Oh, shut up. I'm not even, I shouldn't even try this. Insert a graph. Uh, well, spank me, Jesus. It didn't do the, uh, the horizontal labels right, but there's the NPV graph. There's the NPV profile. So, gives you an idea, though, of this thing. Now, I'm going to show you something here. Let me, uh, let me see if I can actually fix this. I'm not going to be able to do it. The hell with that. But there's your NPV profile. This is all there is to the NPV method. Its main difficulty would be, of course, with the discount rate. Like I said, companies usually make it easy. They just say, use the whack, which I told you has its own weakness. But enough of that. Okay. Now for the internal rate of return method. See that place right there where it hits the x-axis? That is the discount rate that makes the net present value zero. We have a name for it. It's called the internal rate of return. The IRR. The internal rate of return is the discount rate that makes the net present value zero. The internal rate of return is the discount rate that makes the net present value zero. The internal rate of return is the discount rate that makes the net present value zero. The internal rate of return is the discount rate that makes the net present value zero. Now I've said that four times, so you think that might show up on a quiz or an exam somewhere? It's any discount rate below internal rate of return is a go. See, it's a positive MPV. Any internal rate, any internal. So if someone said, well, the IRR of this project is 5%, you'd say, well, it's a go then. Any discount rate that would be above the internal rate of return is a no. Now, here's the thing, is back in the day, imagine not having calculators in Excel to find internal rate of return. Well, let's try this discount rate. Oops, that's too low. Let's try this discount rate. You actually were searching for the stupid discount rate that got your MPV to be zero. So you could try all day. Now, we cheated back in the day. What we would do is we'd find two net present values. 
one for a low discount rate and one for a high discount rate. And then we would use this engineering graph paper with a mechanical pencil to graph it and then we would eyeball where it hit. If you do it really carefully, it works. Now, I'm looking at that, and as you can see, my graph sucked, okay? That's what you get when you get old. Your hand gets shaky and all that. But if I'm looking at that, that looks like about what? 7.6%? No, I'm sorry, 8.6%. Well, you say, well, is there an easier way to do it? Oh, you better believe it. Watch this. <laughs> and I'm going to cheat here. The calculator turned off. You see that, right? Okay. There is an app called IRR. It is just like the NPV, except that you don't put in a discount rate. That's what you're trying to find. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to edit my NPV formula. And I'm going to take the cursor clear back up to the NPV and I'm going to replace that with IRR. Watch again. I edited the, I'm editing the NPV formula. I'm going to say apps. I said, uh, no, I don't want to do that. Apps, finance, and if you go down to 8 IRR, if I hit, hit enter, see how it replaced the NPV with the IRR? Now, remember what I said. You don't want a discount rate. That's what you're finding. So I'm going to delete the 9 and the comma. So in other words, IRR, you just put in the initial investment, comma, then open braces in your cash flow. Now remember, I, I'm looking, I'm seeing what? About 8.6, 8.7%. Let's see what it exactly is. Eight, oh, I'm good, 8.77%. So the internal rate of return is 8.77%. Yeah, yeah, I know, I said 8.6 to 8.7, bite me. I did pretty well for a hand-drawn graph. Okay, but that's how, and it still amazes me to this day. Did you see that? The calculator just does it. Notice that it takes it a little, a minute, because what the calculator is doing is it is making a guess and then it's seeing whether it's positive or negative, and then it makes a higher guess, and then it runs back and forth until it gets like an NPV of zero to 12 decimal places. And it does that in the blink of an eye. Now watch Excel. You can do the same thing in Excel. Let me get this off here. Again, let me get this off here. Okay, so now I'm going to do the internal rate of return. And I'll say equals IRR, open parenthesis. And in this case, it's going to want me to give it just the values. Now, full disclosure, I think this time you put in all the numbers, even the negatives. And you close the parenthesis. Two decimal places. There you go.
You follow it? I mean, it's in Excel, once you get in the numbers, it's a joke. It's just easy to do it. And so this is the internal rate of return method. However, this isn't how it's used exactly. What companies do is they will have a corporate policy hurdle rate. They will say every project must cross a hurdle rate of let's say 10%. Where are they getting this? Surprisingly, they're pulling it out of their asses. Just like before. It's, that's one of the worst problems with IRR. It's scientifically valid, but it starts with just a number that they decide. Now watch how you watch how you use it. Let me show you how you use it. Okay, suppose that you had four projects. Project and the internal rate of return. Project A, B, C, and D. Let's say that project A has a 12%, 12.2% internal rate of return. Project B has a 7.89% internal rate of return. Project C has a, let's say, a 9 point, oh no, let's do a 5.62%. And Project D has a whopping 14.2%. Seven zero percent. Here's how the hurdle rate works. You reject any project that has an internal rate of return that is below the hurdle. You reject any project that has an internal rate of return below the hurdle. It works in this it works like this. Let me show you. Now, that project A, let's say one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. That's your internal rate, re that's your discount rate axis. And NPV is up here. <coughs> now, project A, we might not know what it's profile looks like exactly, but we know one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. We know that it crosses the x-axis at twelve point two zero. How do we know that? We know that because that's the internal rate of return. Whatever its slope is, we may not know, but we know it crosses there. That's project A. Notice that at the hurdle of 10%, project A is positive. Project B crosses at 7.89%, right about there. 
So at the hurdle rate of 10%, it's negative. So we would say no to it. Project C at 5.62%, it crosses the axis at 5.62%. So obviously at 10%, that thing is whack negative. So we would reject it. And project D, it's got a whopping 14.7%. So it crosses way out here. So it's obviously at 10%, it's way positive NPV. So it's a go. That's how hurdle rate works. Every company that uses internal rate of return is going to have used that hurdle rate method. So a little bit more on Wednesday and then you have a quiz. That's all I have for you today, I thank you.